0: This morning, I'm beginning a new sermon series. I just finished going through Philippians, and now we're going back to the Old Testament and we're going to go through the book of Jonah. Now, of course, when you say the name Jonah, even people who don't go to church immediately think of what? Jonah and the whale or the great fish, the big fish, as the Bible puts it, but this is not just a cute Sunday school story for children. You know, it is a masterfully told story that is very relevant to our lives today, and so we're going to take about probably about five or six weeks to go through Jonah, and I'm just going to begin with the first three verses this morning. And so Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, please open our ears to hear, open our hearts to understand what this passage means for us, what it means for our lives. Help us to see you more clearly, Lord, and and respond however it is you call us to respond today. In Jesus' name, amen. So before I dive into the relevance of this passage for your life, uh, for our lives today, there's three background questions I think you need to answer as you look at this. Uh, is this a historical story? What is a prophet? What's the job of a prophet? And then what's the significance of the two places that are mentioned, Nineveh and Tarshish? So is this a historical story? The answer is maybe. Maybe. Jonah is definitely a historical person. We read about him elsewhere. In 2 Kings 14, 23 to 27, we read this. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, The prophet from Gath affair. So there he is, Jonah, son of Amittai, showing up in Second Kings. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help him, and since the Lord had not said He would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. So we do have corroboration in another story here that there was a prophet named Jonah spoke God's word to a wicked king named Jeroboam, who was used by God to restore the boundaries of Israel in a time when they were under siege from many foreign invaders. That does not necessarily mean that the story in Jonah is a historical story. And Before you call me a heretic, let me just explain that as you read the Bible, you need to pay attention to genre, right? The Bible is full of different genres. Some are historical genres. Uh, There's poetry, right? You read the Psalms. There's Proverbs, There are letters. There are gospels. There's different genres. And when you read, there's apocalyptic literature, revelation, and each genre has its own rules on how you read it. And the big question as you read Jonah is, is this meant to be history or is this something else as you look at how it's structured? And some would say it's a historical story. This actually happened. Jonah Went to preach, he wound up swallowed by this fish, he spit out all of this, and that's possible. It's certainly possible that it's a historical story. There's nothing that God can't do. But there's also clues as you read it that maybe this is meant as a parable, basically, the way Jesus told parables. In case you don't know what a parable is, here's one definition from John MacArthur A parable is an ingeniously simple word picture illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. So, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Or the parable of the sower and the seeds, or Uh, the unforgiving servant, things like that. There's stories that Jesus told that sounded like they could have actually happened, but they're meant to illustrate uh, a deeper meaning. And so there's certainly a possibility that some commentators believe that this is taking an actual historical person, Jonah, and using a story, basically, that's crafted to explain a deeper theological truth about Israel and the people of God and their relationship to foreign countries and their relationship with God. So... Either way, we're going to focus on what the theological significance is of this passage, whether it's historical or whether it's meant to be a parable. Now, Jonah, as we just learned, was a prophet. And when you hear the word prophet, some of you may think a prophet means someone who tells the future because that tends to be what we think of when we think of prophets today. But in those days, the prophet had another uh, main purpose. And it was known as a, they were known as covenant mediators, a covenant mediator that when God rescued the people of Israel from Egypt and slavery, he brought them out to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel. And the covenant went like this. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Here's the Ten Commandments, and here's the rest of the commandments of what it means to be my people. Here's the rules to follow. Here's the laws to obey. And if you follow these rules and obey these laws, here's the blessings that will happen. Prosperity and good crops and long life and peace, things like that. And if you disobey these laws, here's the curses that will happen, invading invasions from foreign armies and pestilence and things like that. That's how it was set up at Mount Sinai here. And every time that the people of Israel were in danger of bringing the curses upon themselves because of their rebellion, because of their idolatry, their false worship, their injustice, whatever it might be, what would God do? He'd raise up a prophet. He would send a prophet who would be the mouthpiece of God, who would come to the people of Israel and basically tell them, repent, the direction you're going is not good, and you need to turn from your false worship, turn from your idolatry, turn from your injustice, back to the covenant, back to God. As you can imagine, prophets were not popular people because you know nowadays you think of prophets coming in and reading people's mail, so to speak, and telling the future, and they're popular people, but in those days a prophet was someone calling people to repentance, calling people back to God. And sometimes prophets were also sent to give messages to foreign countries as well, sent by God to foreign nations like this example of Jonah being sent to Nineveh to preach against the wickedness and evil that was there. Again, given what we know from 2 Kings and what we read about Jonah, he was a prophet in a time when they needed to strengthen the boundaries and the borders of Israel because there were a lot of foreign nations invading. And so Jonah seems to be sent here to Nineveh, one of those foreign armies that was always invading Israel, to call them to repent, to give up their evil and their violence. So again, that third question of what's the significance of Nineveh and Tarshish. Nineveh was uh, the capital city of Assyria. Assyria was one of the oldest civilizations and they were bent on violence. They were known for their violence, and they attacked Israel often. And so Jonah is told by God in this passage to go and preach against them and their violence and their evil ways. And what does he do instead? It says he ran away from the Lord. He's heading for Tarshish, which people are not sure where it is, but they think it's the southwest coast of Spain. So essentially, right instead of going this direction to the east, he is going as far as possible in the opposite direction. So what I want to do this morning in light of this passage, now that we've kind of looked at the background, is there's two levels I want to look at this morning of the main point that seems to be God calls Jonah, and Jonah rebels. Jonah is disobedient. At it's, it, it's the simplest message, that's what it is. It's God calls this man to a task, and he, instead of obeying, disobeys and goes the absolute opposite direction. And so there's two levels I want to look at this morning and how it relates to us. First of all, there's God's call to find our identity and purpose in him. And then secondly, there's God's call to share his message with the world. So this is what seems to be happening in the first three verses, and I want to use what happens to Jonah here to look at our lives. God's call in our life to find our identity and purpose in him, and God's call to share his message with the world. So the Bible tells us that there's a God who created everything. And in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the creator of everything. And so we are created beings. We are created beings designed by God to live in relationship with Him, to find our identity and purpose in relationship to the creator who created us. Many verses I could give about this. One is Colossians 1, 16 to 17. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Again, this is one of many verses that just tells us that there is a God who created us and we cre- we're created by him and for him. And we find our identity and our purpose in relationship to the God who created us. Now, as Janet just mentioned, we're having a tag sale next Saturday. My wife is one of those who loves the tag sale. Yesterday, we were at a couple of tag sales together. And sometimes she will bring home things like a lawnmower from a tag sale, right? And when she brings home something like a lawnmower it leaves me with a couple options of how to figure this thing out. Either I can just try to figure it out on my own how this lawnmower works, and if it's not working, what's wrong with it? Or what can I do? I can look for the model number. I can Google the model number. I can find the instructions. I can print them out, and then I can follow the instructions to figure out how to get this thing to work. Either I can just figure it out on my own and hope that I don't break it or make it worse, or I can listen to the one who designed it, right? the one who assembled it and put it together, and I can follow their advice. Using that as an analogy, if there is a God who created us, we could either just live our lives and try to do whatever it is we please, or we can go to the manual, so to speak, get to know the creator who designed us and how it is we're supposed to run. I believe it's pretty clear that in our culture, there's a, an increasing number of people who live and believe as if there is no creator, there is no designer. We are just here by accident, or who cares why we're here, but it's not about whether there's a God or how he wants me to live, whether there's a designer, but we are like Jonah. More and more people are like Jonah, where it's like, yeah, maybe there's a God, but I'm just going to go in this direction and do whatever it is I want. I'll live however I please. I think... An increasing number of people see that they are just self-creators, self-designers. There's no one who created me, no one who designed me. I can live or please, live, however I please, do whatever I want. This is a very attractive message, for sure, because you don't have to answer to anyone. It just says, "You do you, right? You just live, however it is you please. You look inward. Who are you on the inside? And then you give expression to that. Charles Taylor, philosopher, he put it this way. He called it the age of authenticity. There's a big word for him today, right? The age of authenticity. He said this, I mean the understanding of life, which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity And that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. Does that sound familiar? You may have never read that quote before, but that sounds familiar, doesn't it? More and more people would say amen to this, right? Instead of living my life in conformity to some external standard, whether you call it God or my parents or society or religion or politics, what I need to do is live authentically. I need to give expression to what it is that I see or feel on the inside. Another great term is expressive individualism, which is by Carl Truman, another philosopher and professor. He said this, expressive individualism particularly refers to the idea that in order to be fulfilled, In order to be an authentic person, in order to be genuinely me, I need to be able to express outwardly or perform publicly that which I feel I am inside. Okay, Is this not the cultural water in which we swim today? What matters most is you do you, be authentic to who it is, what it is you feel on the inside. You give voice to that. You express that and expect everyone else to affirm that as opposed to there being a creator who designed you and getting to know what it means to live according to his design. So Jonah, in some ways, is like that. God is calling him to a specific identity and purpose, and Jonah is rejecting it and running as far away as he possibly can. And as he's about to find, as we're about to find in the next couple sermons, it doesn't go well. It kind of ends with a lot of chaos for him and for those around him. And for those who think that just by rejecting any God and just living however I please is going to lead myself to happiness and peace and lead this world to unity and peace, it doesn't. It leads to significant personal and cultural chaos. So again, Jonah thinks he's finding freedom here. I'm just going to leave God and go do whatever I want. And our culture certainly believes that by throwing off any idea of God, any idea of religion or my parents or politics, by living however it is I please, that that's, that's freedom, right? That's freedom. Nobody can tell me what to do. No restrictions. I will live however I please. I will do whatever I want. And that's freedom. It's the attitude of William Shakespeare, right? This above all, to thine own self be true. You do you. You be true to yourself. Don't let anyone else tell you what you can or cannot do. You need to look inside and give expression to that. That's freedom, the absence of restriction. This attitude seems very, again, self-evident in America. If you've been paying attention, if you listen, this is very much the attitude, the cultural attitude around us. That we are basically good people with good desires and what we need to do is just follow it, whatever it is that we feel like we need to do in our hearts. And that is freedom. That will lead to fulfillment. So here's my argument, which if you've been a part of this church, you've heard this argument before, that true freedom is not the absence of restriction. True freedom is not just throwing off all restrictions and doing whatever it is that you please, but true freedom comes... When you submit to your design, when you submit to the right restrictions. So, let me give you some analogies in case that doesn't make sense. Consider the fish. What if a fish said, You know what? I am tired of swimming in this ocean, being told how I must live, where I must be. I want to go live on the land. What is going to happen to that fish? When that fish expresses his freedom, that fish is going to die because the fish was designed for a specific environment, the water. And when he leaves that environment, that design, he dies. What about the bird? The bird who says, I'm tired of all this flying through the air and all this. I want to swim. I want to live in the water. What's going to happen to that bird when that bird chooses not to live according to his design? that bird as well is going to drown because it was not created to live in the water. What about musicians? If you play the piano and you say, well, you know what, I hate all these restrictions on like chords and notes and all of that, and I'm just going to play whatever it is I want to play, bang on the keys however I want. Is that going to lead to beautiful noise? it's going to lead to chaos. If we had a band up here and Rich said, you know what, I'm just going to play whatever I want. And Megan said, I'm going to play whatever I want. And the singer said, I'm going to sing however I want. And Zach, play whatever he wants. How is that going to work for us as a church? True freedom is not the absence of restriction. It's submitting to the right restrictions, to life-giving restrictions. When the piano player decides that he or she is going to submit himself or herself to The laws of the keyboard, then over time they will find that they can play freely anything. What about the athlete? Again, what if the basketball player is like, I don't want to follow all these rules, these laws of the game? I'm just going to do whatever I want, play however I want. Again, it's going to be chaos. Living with that, that definition of freedom, that I can do whatever I want and throw off every restriction will lead to chaos. But when you master the laws of the game, when you master how it's to be played, then you become like Steph Curry, the most free player out there who can do just about anything with a basketball because he has submitted himself to the laws of the game. What about if you own a car? And what about if you say, you know what, this whole idea of like getting my oil changed every 3,000 miles, you know? every three months, like, no, I am not going to submit to that tyranny. I want to be free as a car owner, and I want to just do whatever I want with this car. What is going to happen to your car? It's going to break down, because true freedom is not the absence of restriction. True freedom is submitting to the right restriction. When you submit your car to the laws of mechanics, then it will run Well, am I making sense here? Our culture is teaching you and teaching us that freedom is the absence of restrictions. That freedom means nobody can tell me what to do. I need to do whatever it is that I feel is right on the inside. That is authentic living. That I need to do what's right for me. Everyone else needs to do what's right for them. That is going to lead to fulfillment. That is going to lead to joy, life to the full. And I'm here to tell you that that is a lie. That you are a created person. That you were designed. And that you will find true freedom when you submit yourself to the creator who designed you. And the way that you were designed to live. That if you try to live like Jonah, just go off and do your own thing. That it's going to lead to internal personal chaos. It's going to lead to cultural chaos as well. So summing it up here, true freedom... Is not the absence of restriction, but submitting to the right restrictions, to life giving restrictions. If this is new to you, I'm challenging you to consider this this morning. That true freedom is not found like Jonah in just here's what God is calling you to do, and you're going to run in the opposite direction and do whatever it is you want. But true freedom is found in submitting yourself to the right restrictions, to the life-giving restrictions, to the design of the one who created you. 1 Peter 2.16 tells us, Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Freedom to serve. It's ironic in the same sentence there. Use your freedom to serve God, to submit yourself to the one who created you, and then you will find true freedom. What that means is that your authentic self Your true self, your best life, will not be found in living as a self-centered, self-designed, self-created, autonomous individual. Looking within and then giving expression to whatever it is you find there. It's going to be found by looking to the creator, the one who designed you, and then submitting yourself to his will. So that's the first level I wanted to look at this morning that, our, that, that we see here in Jonah 1, 1 through 3, God's call to find our identity and purpose in him. Jonah, I've called you to be a prophet and to go do this, and Jonah will have none of it. And so many of us, God has already told us, called us to live in relationship to him, in submission to him, that that is where we will find life to the full. That is where we will find true freedom. And so many of us resist that. But there's a second level to Jonah 1, 1 through 3, and that is God's call to share his message with the world because there's a specific message that God has for Jonah. I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach against its wickedness. I want you to go and tell this barbarous people, right, this violent nation, to give up their violence, to repent. And Jonah, instead of obeying, runs away. Now, this call from the very beginning on Israel was to be this city on a hill, a light to the nation. For example, Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn. There was this idea that Israel was to be a light to the nations, a city on a hill, proclaiming the glory of God, calling People from all nations to a relationship with the Creator. First Chronicles sixteen, sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim his salvation day after day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. So Jonah's call was part of God's bigger call that his people would proclaim God's glory and his message to the whole world. And this continues in the New Testament. Matthew five fourteen to 16, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Notice, again, the outward focus here of being a light to others, proclaiming something to others. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, after Jesus rose from the dead, he gathered his disciples and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Are you sensing the theme here? That it's a call to go and make disciples go and proclaim a message from God. Luke twenty-four, forty-six to seven, Jesus told his disciples, This is what is written: that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There's a message. Turn from sin, turn from self-centeredness, turn from being your own self-designed creator, turn to God, forgiveness of sins. A restoration to a right relationship with God will be preached in all nations. Acts 1, 7-8, before Jesus ascends to heaven, he says to his disciples, it is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The call to be witnesses to everyone. And then lastly, let me share this one, 2 Corinthians 5. 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you, On Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, again, in Jonah 1, you have God calling Jonah to find his identity and purpose in relationship to him, the Creator, and also to proclaim a message to others a message of repentance and faith to give up their violence, to turn from their sinful ways, to put their faith in God. And this message is not just for Jonah. It's not just a story about a disobedient prophet. It is meant to be a mirror held up to us, to Israel who read it, and now to us today. You have been entrusted with this same calling. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and be my witnesses. Go and be ambassadors. You have a ministry of reconciliation, calling others to be reconciled to God. Is that clear? Is this clear? Are we seeing this? That this is a task for all of us. It's a message that has been given to each of us to proclaim to others. Reconciliation, being right with God. Repentance, turning from sin. Forgiveness, restoration to a right relationship with God. Because the stakes are big. Jesus put it this way in John three sixteen to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Do you see how high the stakes are in that passage? Again, these are Jesus' words, and if they are to be taken seriously, what does he seem to be saying here? He seems to be saying that the eternal destiny of each individual depends upon how they respond to him. That we all, it says, are under condemnation, judgment, because of our sin. But God loved the world so much that he did not leave us in our sin, but sent his son to die for us, that all who believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And now he said, go and tell people this. Go and share this good news. The stakes are pretty high, according to this passage. Because he says those who do not believe, it says, are condemned already because they haven't believed in Jesus. This story is not just about a disobedient prophet. Again, whether it's historical or a parable, it's meant to be a mirror that is held up to the Israelites and then to you. That just like Jonah, many of us, if we're honest, Have heard this before. I'm not telling you anything new for many of you. You have heard this before that God has called you to be his witnesses, to go and to share this good news. And like Jonah, many of us have turned our tail and run in the opposite direction. I want you to share the good news with your neighbor. I want you to share this with your coworker. I want to share you to share this with your son or your grandson. Your sister. And then we, in response, catch the first ship for Tarshish, right? Metaphorically speaking. God says, go over here, and we go over there. With our fingers in our ears, you know? Don't want to hear it. It's easy to laugh at Jonah, but then when you hold the mirror up to yourself, you realize, hmm, yeah. I'm not that different. And and we understand why. I can understand why. For some of us, it's fear of rejection. We're fear of saying something and being rejected. We don't want to seem different. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to be looked at as if we're weird or different than the rest of the crowd. Or maybe, as we're going to see in Jonah's case, maybe it's just a lack of love for others a lack of compassion, a lack of really caring about other people. Or maybe it's just a lack of understanding of the stakes and how high they are and the eternal destiny, the eternal stakes here for each person. Because it is not easy to share your faith. It's not easy to share about Jesus with others. There's a couple of passages that, Tell us about what might happen. 1 Corinthians one eighteen: the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So some are going to receive that as a message from God, the power of God, and some are going to see it as foolishness and see you as foolish for believing it. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2.14-16, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. In other words, as you share the gospel, some will think you stink. And some will receive it as if it were a sweet-smelling flower. There is a call on Jonah's life and there is a call on your life to be his witnesses, to share the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins, to tell people about Jesus. And the temptation is to sugarcoat it or water it down or avoid it or to run to Tarshish, but the call is clear. Go and make disciples. Preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Be his witnesses. How are you doing with that? Is anything coming to mind for you, anyone coming to your heart Times when God, you feel like, has laid on your heart to share something, and you, like Jonah, have just turned your tail and run in the opposite direction. Paul clearly understood this. When he was meeting with the Ephesian elders before he left Ephesus, he said this, "'You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus.'" Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. You see that phrase there? I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I haven't shrunk back. I've left it all in the field. I've put it out there. I didn't shy away. And so he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Can you say that in your own life? That if someone in your life were to die without knowing him, without having heard the gospel, you could say, I'm innocent. I did all I could to share. I'm going to share, this is from a, uh, a video by Penn Gillette. Some of you have heard me share this one before. He was, he's part of the Las Vegas illusionist duo Penn and Teller. He's a very outspoken atheist, very smart, it's not hard to find videos of him online ridiculing religious people for their belief. And in one video, he shares about an encounter he had with a gentleman after one of his shows. And let me just share what he said in that video. So he says, he walked over to me and he said, I was here at the show last night. I saw the show and I liked it. He was complimentary about my use of, my, of language and my honesty. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he gave me a pocket Gideon's Bible with the New Testament and Psalms. He said, I wrote in the front of this and I wanted you to have it. I'm proselytizing. I want you to know that I'm a businessman. I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye, and it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist, but he was not defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes, and he was truly complimentary. It didn't seem in any way that it was empty flattery. He was kind and nice and sane, and he looked me in the eye, and he talked to me, and then he gave me this Bible. And I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize, which is another word for sharing your faith if you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believe that there is a truck bearing down on you and you you didn't believe it, there's a certain point at which I tackle you, and this is more important than that. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and gave me a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me and five phone numbers and an email address in case I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there is no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. But I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man, and that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think religion does a lot of bad stuff, but that was a very good man. It's a powerful statement from an atheist. Now, I don't have many co-workers in my life. I'm the only one who works here. I surround myself with a lot of Christians on a regular, you know, basis. I don't have many relationships with people who don't believe that are on that depth of a level, you know, and... and two people in particular in my life who I had some level of relationship with uh, were John Damien and Gaia McDermott. And John was a gentleman who showed up at Fight Club five years ago, lived in the area, uh, very, very lonely man, very depressed man. Uh, and he started coming to Fight Club on occasion, and every time he showed up, he'd tell us that his life was horrible and it had never been worse and he saw no hope for the future. And there were some people in this church as well who reached out to him and befriended him and tried their best to go on walks with him and to invite him to things. And he often turned them down because he was so depressed. But we did our best to share the love of God and share the gospel with him. And he passed away two weeks ago. And Gaia McDermott, she reached out to me, again, four or five years ago because she was starting... Uh, she she was an atheist who wanted to interview pastors on why they believe what they believe. And her goal was to try to convert pastors to atheism. And she was using something called street epistemology uh, to try and ask us and and to probe and to kind of get us to realize that our, our faith was ridiculous. And a lot of people said no. Of course, they didn't want to get together. But I, of course, was like, great. This is awesome. An atheist reaching out to talk about faith? Let's do it. And so I got together with her regularly, and we'd talk. And then she started a podcast Called Face the Sun. And on that podcast, she wanted uh, to talk about matters of faith and religion and belief and unbelief. And she decided she was going to visit 52 churches in the span of a year and report on those churches and what it was that was good and bad about them. And she came to our church one of those Sundays and she did a podcast about her experience in our church. And then COVID hit and she never was able to reach 52 churches in 52 years. But we got together and I was on her podcast a couple times uh rich porter another person in our church was on as well we talked with her about the resurrection and proofs of the resurrection and we, we talked about different uh points of debate with her and she died this week as well and she was someone who you know even even a week ago we were emailing about getting together and and she also struggled with depression and she also just had a hard time with life and she wrestled with whether or not there was a god or not and thankfully at least with those two people i can look and i can say you know what I did my best to share the gospel with both of them and their fate is in God's hands and I don't know what their moments were like, their final moments. Hopefully they believed. But there's plenty of other people in my life who I cannot say that I'm innocent of their blood. You know? It was a shock yesterday to all of a sudden see on Facebook that Gaia had passed away. And the truth is that any of these people in my life, family or friends, could be gone at any moment. And I want to be able to say I'm innocent of of their blood, that God willing, I shared as best I could the faith with them. And then it's between them and the Lord. But I want you to take this this morning. This is not just a story about a disobedient prophet, you know, that gets told in Sunday school. This is meant to be a mirror held up to you. That God has called you to live in relationship with him, to find your purpose and identity in him And that true freedom is found not in just casting that off and running the opposite direction and doing your own thing and being a self-created, self-designed individual, but living in submission to him. And God has entrusted to you the message of reconciliation to go and share the good news of Jesus. And like Jonah, many of us run the opposite direction. But I'm encouraging this morning, there's no greater joy There's no greater joy than when someone comes to faith, right? And and it's because of you being obedient and sharing your faith with them. And you know that their eternal destiny has been changed because God used you, because you are courageous enough to share. There's no greater joy than knowing that someone's eternal destiny has been changed because God used you. So I'm going to close right now, and I'm going to ask you just to take a minute in silence while the worship team comes up, and just consider what is God calling you to? Who is he laying on your heart, asking him for opportunity and courage to share the gospel with them? we confess to you our disobedience. We confess to you our sin that so often we have failed to trust that you are a good God who has good plans for us. And we have run the opposite direction because of our fears, because of our lack of love, because of our lack of trust. We confess that to you, God, forgive us our sins. We thank you, Jesus, that because of your death for us, we are forgiven. Lord, we lift up to you those who are on our hearts who don't know you or who we're not sure whether or not they know you. You have entrusted to us this message, this gospel message. We pray for courage to share that message in both words and in actions, to love our neighbor, to share the good news with them. And we pray that you would bring these individuals to faith in you, to saving faith. Reveal themselves to you through our witness, Lord. Encourage us that when we step out in faith that you can do amazing things and you can bring dead men and women to life, eternal life. We pray for a harvest of souls, Lord, for a revival for many people to come to faith as we step out in obedience and service to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.